You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, this is Leslie Ann. Thanks for listening in. This week in class, we discussed 1 Samuel chapters 11 through 13. And we learned that although Saul, Israel's new king, first demonstrates great promise, by the end of this week's reading, we see that at heart, he's not the kind of king that Israel really needs. This teaching corresponds with the material covered on pages 60 to 75 of the Learner Workbook, available for download from the thevillagechurch.net. Well, when we left off last week, we had a new king-ish, right? Saul has been anointed and appointed king. But before they got to that point, there was another battle, chapter 7, right? Where, who led them into it? The Lord. The Lord led them in battle. The Lord defeated their enemies, and everything was good. That chapter, chapter 7, ended with the statement that in all of Samuel's days, the Philistines were subdued. They did not enter the territory of Israel. The cities that they had taken were restored to Israel. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. So there was this relative period of peace for Samuel's entire life. It says all the days of Samuel this happened. So I don't know how old Samuel is. I'm guessing he's maybe in his 20s, maybe 30s or so by this time, depending on how old he was when the ark was taken. It traveled through enemy territory and came back and stayed in one place. And it said that the people lamented after them for 20 years, 20 years. By the time we get then to chapter 8, it says Samuel became old. So he's an old man now. And also in this week's reading, he talks about how old he is. So... Old and gray. So for the span of his lifetime, there has been relative peace, but the people demand a king. And so Saul is chosen to be king. He's selected. He's anointed. He's appointed. But where is he? Where is he? He's hiding. He's hiding in the baggage, right? And the way that that passage ends in chapter 10 is with some people being given hearts to follow him, right? Men of valor who's hearts God had touched went with Saul and um, supported him. But then that last verse, number 27 said, some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And what we found when we get in today's reading is that that question is going to be answered. How can this man save us? Well, we're going to see because Saul has been selected as king, but he has not necessarily acted as king yet thus far in our story. And so what we're going to get to in chapter 11 is his first real acting as Israel's king. Now, every week in your homework, it asks that question that Rebecca loves so much about what God is and who we are in response. And because of the way I think that this particular reading is set out with these chapters, I didn't have just one answer this week. I had a separate answer for every chapter. And so that's kind of the way we're going to move through it is looking at what we see about the Lord in each one of these separate chapters and then what that means for us. So in the first one in chapter 11, I see the Lord as one who provides salvation. And we're going to see the way that he does that as we go get in there and read. Okay. So verse one, then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Okay, so Ammon is Israel's neighbor to the east. Nahash is their king, and he sets siege on the city of Jabesh-Gilead. And so they're like, apparently, 
you know, the fight's over before it even started because they're ready to just give up without even fighting. Make a treaty with us. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes. Super awesome. And thus bring disgrace on all Israel. So it's, he's not even interested really in like having them as his servants or conquering them, taking over their life. Like he just wants to bring disgrace to Israel. That's his main goal. So the people are terrified. Um, they obviously consider their situation to be a lost cause. If they didn't think that, they wouldn't have asked for a treaty. But Nahash is particularly, y'all, I cannot talk tonight. I keep stumbling over words. Particularly brutal in his response. So in those days, treaties were ratified by blood sacrifice. The word for, you know, making a treaty that they have with them, make a treaty with us, is literally to cut a treaty. So they would cut animals. And that would be the sign that both parties have made this agreement. It's the kind of thing that you see happening in Genesis when Abraham makes a covenant with God. Um, Abraham gathers the animals, cuts them in half, and then they walk down the two sides. They walk down the middle with like the either half of the animals on either side. And that is the way the treaty was ratified. So this blood sacrifice was required <clears throat> for treaties. But the only acceptable sacrifice for Nahash is the cutting out of their eyes. That's the kind of blood that he wants, which would be obviously not an ideal situation for the people of Jabesh Gilead. Why? They couldn't fight. That's right. They would not be able to defend themselves from anyone, not just Nahash, but from any of their enemies. Not only that, but to have a mutilated face in that way would be a walking testimony of their disgrace. It would be on display for all to see, no matter where they went, even if they left Israel, Anywhere they went, that it would be obvious that something terrible had happened to them. So for Nahash, it's a win-win, right? Because not only will you be subject to me if we make this treaty, but you'll also be unable to fight against me ever. You'll be useless in battle against me. So that's obviously not an okay situation for them. So then they ask, give us seven days of respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. And he's like, okay, no big deal. You go right ahead. Which tells us something about the way things were in Israel. And he was obviously familiar with it. There was no central government in Israel, right? The way that things operated was that all these different clans had a separate set of elders, and they kind of operated as their own separate unit, and then they would come together when they needed to, but it would take days for someone to like go to all the separate groups of elders and gather help. And so Nahash knows this. He knows what's going on because when they beg for the chance to send for help, he's like, sure, go ahead. A lot of good that's going to do you. So it's clear that he doesn't expect anyone to come, and neither do they. Not really. Um, and you can tell that they don't think that anyone's going to help because when they get to Gibeah... In verse 4, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. There's no talk of let's rally and go. Until Saul arrives on the scene, all there is is weeping, right? People are distraught by the news. They are upset by the news. But there is no rallying cry to get up and go do something about it. It gets already kind of accepted as this done deal. So the messengers go to Gibeah, which happens to be Saul's home. 
and the people of Gibeah and Jabesh Gilead had a history. Now this comes in, um, Gina, with the question you were asking last week, what's the deal with Saul being like, I'm only from Benjamin, okay? Because this is all kind of tied up in that story. It's recorded in Judges chapters 19 through 21, and it's not a good story, okay? It's the story about the Levite who's traveling through Benjamin with his concubine, and they stop in Benjamin in the city of Gibeah to stay the night. Um, but the men of the city riot outside the home. They, like, want to take the man out and drag him out in the streets and kill him. But he gives them his concubine instead. He's like, here, take her. And so they take the concubine. They abuse her all night long. They leave her dead on the doorstep. Literally, her hands are on the threshold. And he finds her the next morning, packs her up, takes her home to his tribe, Ephraim, chops her up into pieces, and sends her out to all the separate tribes. Now, does that ring any bells with what's happening in this story? Okay. So, not commenting at all on the rightness of that situation. Because clearly, the Levite was also in the wrong here. He wasn't exactly untarnished by that situation. Okay. But that's what he did. He sent it out as a rallying cry to the tribes of Israel. So, Israel answered the call. They gathered together and they waged war on Benjamin. It was civil war in Benjamin and ben, civil war in Israel and Benjamin was decimated because of it. Now when the dust settled, um, they started to feel bad for what they had done to Benjamin and said, it's not right for there to be such strife between us. You know, they're our brothers. So let's make this right somehow. Let's find wives for Benjamin. But the problem was that the ones who had come up to fight against them had made a vow not to enter into marriage with them, not to give their daughters to marriage. So the ones who fought against Benjamin had said that they would never do this kind of thing. They would never allow their daughters to marry someone from Benjamin. So then they started thinking, who wasn't there? Who didn't answer the call? Who was not at the fight? And it turns out that Jabesh Gilead didn't come. They didn't send anyone. And so the people of Israel gathered up 400 women from Jabesh Gilead and took them to Benjamin to become wives. Okay, Some of them would have settled in Gibeah. So when the messengers from Jabesh Gilead arrive in Benjamin, they're talking family. You know, It's not just these random people. They had close ties to the area. And it makes the situation a personal one. They were family, and they were in trouble. So what happens next? Let's read in verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What's wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. Interesting, by the way. Did you notice that? It's about Israel as 300,000 and Judah 30,000. So this is not even, um, this is just a little side note. Israel and Judah are still one country. They're not known separately as Israel and Judah until after Solomon's reign is when the kingdom is divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. But it's interesting that here in the history they're listed separately. 
associated by their tribes. And they said to the messengers who had come, well, let's, let's stop there. Okay. So Saul, here's the news. He's filled with the spirit of God, right? The spirit of God rushes upon him. He sends out a call just like the Levite did. And what is his call? How did you summarize it? He told you to do it in five words or less in your homework. What were your words? Number six, page 62. In five Fight for me or die. I said all hands on deck or else. <laughs> all hands. Mine was stand with me or die. So we're, we're close there. We're close. Anybody else? Okay. So he issues that call. Stand or die. Fight or die. And they answer. They rise to the challenge just like they did in Judges. He musters an astonishing number of men. And together they go on this rescue mission for Jabesh Gilead. So how does the rescue mission work? They go, they tell, they, they get messengers to sneak into the city, say tomorrow, by the time the sun rises, you will have deliverance. And so then the men of Jabesh Gilead turn around and send a messenger to Nahash and they're like, do whatever you want with us. Tomorrow you can have us. Okay. So they are confident that their salvation has come. So. Let's see. The next day, verse 11, Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch. That would be the early morning hours when it's still dark out, the wee hours between 2 and 6 a.m. and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. So can you remember from your Bible stories, someone else who struck in the wee hours of the morning and caused confusion? Another judge who has done something like that? Gideon. That's right. And so all of this language that is being used to describe Saul as a spirit rushing upon him and empowering him to do this work, right down to the details of the battle, are very reminiscent of the judges that God had sent forth to deliver Israel in the past. And if you remember, in last week's reading, when um, God told Samuel that Saul was the man, he said that he was going to raise up Saul for two purposes. One, to deliver his people, to save them from their enemies. And the other one was to govern the people. And so we see the first of those kind of coming coming out here. God is enabling Saul to do this work of deliverance. That's what he does. He goes. They have victory. The Ammonites are scattered. There's not two of them left together. Jabesh Gilead is, is rescued. And so there's great rejoicing, as there should be, Right? And y'all, let's celebrate this victory because Saul doesn't have very many good days. Bless his heart. Like the rest of 1 Samuel is just a list of all of his failures. There's not many shining moments for him. Um, But this is one of them. So up until now, Saul has been anointed and appointed as king. But here he's affirmed. Here he is confirmed. So they're riding high on victory. They head to Gilgal to finally and fully establish Saul as king. It says in verse 12, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring us the men that we may put them to death. So remember that that last statement in chapter 10? Those men that said, How can this man save us? But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Oh, it's a good day for them. Um, it's a time when all is as it should be. There's a king in Israel who is driven by the Spirit of God. There's a king in Israel who will answer his people's cries for help, who will deliver them from their enemies, who will bring them salvation. And at the beginning of this chapter, the people are weeping with despair, but by the end of it, they're rejoicing. If you keep reading in verse 14, 
Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. They go from weeping to rejoicing. Why? Because the Lord has provided salvation for his people. It's not about Saul. It's not about what he has done, but it's about what God has done through him. And even Saul recognizes that the Lord has given salvation. So as long as Saul is dependent on the Lord, he cannot fail. It's God who empowers him. It's God who enables him to defeat the Ammonites. And the answer posed to that question at the end of chapter 11, how can this man save us? Is that he can't, not on his own anyway. It's only by the power of God at work in Saul that he can be the king that Israel needs. So then we turn to chapter 12. Now, Saul's kingship has been confirmed, right? There's no question that he, he is Israel's new judge slash deliverer. And Samuel knows that it's time for him to take a step back. So they're at Gilgal. They're still gathered there, I guess, for the rejoicing that was going on. And he gives his farewell, farewell speech and takes one last opportunity to address the people as a whole. So what's, what's going on here? What happened at Gilgal? Why is that a significant place? It's where they put the stones when they did what? They crossed the Jordan, right? So last week when we talked about um, that victory that they had in chapter 7, there was another stone that they set up there. What was that one? Ebenezer, right? And they set up these stones for remembering. Um, so does anyone remember what happened when they crossed the Jordan River? How, how the thing went, you know, came about? It was to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. It's okay. No, you're good. You're good. So the story goes that they get to the Jordan River and they're, how are we going to cross this? Right? What happened? The, the priest uh, walking on the water parts and they have to stand there to Right. The priests are standing there holding the Ark of the Covenant. The waters are held back. The people walk across. And the stones that they set up come from the floor of the Jordan River. They go collect the stones while the priests are just standing there holding the Ark. Hold on just a minute. (laughs) They get the stones. And we're going to assume that they're big stones because you have to notice them. And then they set them up. Now, the the passage specifically where it happens is Joshua chapter 4. And in verse 21 through 24, this is what it says. When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And so this place that they're gathered at is a significant place because it's a place of remembering, and it's a place of renewal. After they crossed the Jordan, they went through their own version of rituals. All the men had to be circumcised before they went marching around Jericho, which was a renewal of their commitment to the Lord then. It's a mark from their time of wandering in the wilderness to starting fresh in the promised land. That's what they did there at Gilgal. And so for them to gather there again, they're literally standing among the stones that were gathered from the bottom of the Jordan River to remember 
and to renew their own commitment for the people of Israel. Renewal always means rehearsing their history. Let's talk about what God has done for us. Let's remember all the things that he has done on our behalf, the ways that he has saved us, the ways that he has delivered us. So they, they always name those things. They recite their history. <clears throat> and it also comes with a sort of covenant renewal where they renew their own commitment to the Lord and to follow his ways. They agree to live according to his laws. Now, there, there are formal covenants like the one at Mount Sinai when they got the Ten Commandments and the whole of the law was given. Okay, so there's that. But then there's also kind of more informal ones. There's one at the end of the book of Joshua 2 where Joshua calls. They're about to like go out to their own territories. But before they go, Joshua reminds them, again, this is who we are. This is what God has done for us. This is who he has called us to be. Now go to your own place and serve the Lord. And so that's the same sort of thing that's happening here. Okay. Now in this chapter, I think that what I see more than anything with the character of God here is that he is one who inspires fear. That he is a God who is to be feared. And the way that Samuel sets about instilling that fear of the Lord in, in the people is... It takes definite steps. The first thing he does is establish his own innocence, right? He he takes stock of his own time as judge and, and basically asks somebody to blame him for something. So verse 1, Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you said to me and have made a king over you. I did what you wanted me to. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I walked before you from my from my youth until this day. And we know from what we've read previously that his days were good days for Israel, right? Here I am. He's asking them to confirm it. Testify before the Lord for me. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Who have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? So when we talked about the king last week and all that the king would do, what was the king going to do? He was going to take. Take your sons. Take your daughters. Take your servants, take your crops, take your land, take, 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 take. And Samuel's standing up in front of them and saying, you had it good when I was in charge. (laughs) And unlike the king who you have chosen for yourself, um, I've done nothing but give. I've served you for my whole life. I'm old and gray and you can't even find a reason to have fault with me. That's what he's saying here. Verse 5, the Lord is witness against you and has anointed as witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Okay, so that's the first thing he does. He, he takes stock of his own time as judge. And then second, he reviews their history. So he's innocent, but then he reviews Israel's history. And does he find them innocent? No, no, he doesn't. They're guilty. Let's read um, verse 6. Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt, the Egyptians oppressed oppressed them. Then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. 
but they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Asheroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubel. Does anybody know who that is? That's Gideon's other name. That's Gideon. Okay. So now he's naming the judges that the Lord sent up. The Lord sent Jerubel and Barak and Jephthah and the last judge that he names and me. By the way, me, I have helped you. I have been God's hand of deliverance for you and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you have lived in safety. Okay. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord, your God was your king. So that's pretty harsh considering that it's a day of rejoicing, right? Um, But what he's pointing out here is that Israel has a history of forgetfulness. God has repeatedly shown himself to be faithful in their past. He heard their cries for help when they were slaves in Egypt. And what did he do? He sent Moses and Aaron to deliver them. Not a king, but the deliverance that they needed from Moses and Aaron. When they settled in the promised land and some time passed, the next generation grew up, they forgot everything that he had done. So what did he do? He sent hardship their way to remind them how much they needed him. And so they cried out for help again. So what does he do now? Does he say, tough luck, you did it to yourself. That's what you get for forgetting me. No, no. He sends judges to rescue them, not a king. Why? Because he was their king. They didn't need anything else. They were safe for all the years of Samuel's judgeship. And everything was well. It was as it should be as long as God was their king. As long as they remembered who they were and who God was and walked in fear of him, then everything was right. But that wasn't enough for them. They wanted a king like everyone else. And that's where their guilt lies in this case. Not just the forgetfulness, but for wanting something For preferring an earthly king over God. So the next thing that Samuel does is that he gives them the terms of the kingship. God's terms. This is what you wanted. God's going to let you have it. But it's going to be on his terms. This is how it's going to work out. So that's where we pick up in verse 13. And now behold the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked. Behold the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. And they have just experienced that, right? They know how good it can be when the king follows the Lord. And it's good. It's real good. But that's not where Samuel stops, is it? Wah, wah, wah. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. What's it like when the hand of the Lord is against you? How was it for the Philistines when the hand of the Lord was heavy against the Philistines when they had the ark? How was that for them? 
I mean, they didn't want to have anything to do with it, right? Yeah. yeah. Right? Ah, they were done. Take this away from me, right? Yeah. So on the one hand, you can follow the Lord and obey Him, and everything will be amazing. But if you don't, the terms of the kingship are clear, right? Samuel reminds them that the king that they have demanded is still subject to the Lord. That ultimately, God is still king. And you would do really well to remember that. Don't forget it. He is still king. And not only is the king subject to the Lord, but so are you. You fear the Lord. You follow him. Okay? And then the way that he really drives home this point that God is king he is in charge, is through a thunderstorm. He, he calls on God to give me a sign that this is true and actual, that they should be afraid of you. And, you know, it's not the first time that something like this has happened because when they were at Mount Sinai and Moses was there with the Ten Commandments, I mean, like, it's, it was a fearful time. Their, their knees were knocking. There was thunder and lightning and smoke. And, I mean, it must have been, it, I can't even imagine how awesome that display of power was. And in this case, in particular, it is, it cannot be called just nature because it was highly out of season, right? It was the dry season. I don't, was, was that in your information? Okay, I couldn't remember if that was in your information or in some of the commentaries I read. So it is out of season for rain to happen. And so God is the only answer to this kind of display of power. And we turn to see that in verse 17. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. It takes them a really long time to get to this point of recognizing their sin. You know, it's been a lot of chapters. We were in chapter 8 when they first demand a king, when they want one. But it's not the first time they've asked for one. I mean, it was happening in Judges 2, shortly after Gideon, you know. But they just become more and more insistent over time that this is what they really need. And at the end of the day, their sin, it comes out in the form of asking for a king, but it's really in not believing that God is enough. Not trusting that the Lord would take care of them. So just like um, that time at Mount Sinai when his power is on full unapologetic display, he does the same thing here, but it's for a purpose. And that purpose is to remind them of what they have been saved from, right? We would all do well to remember what we have been saved from, to remember the depth of our sin and what we deserve 
We deserve that wrath that breaks out in thunder and lightning and leaves knees knocking. That is what we have earned. We should tremble before the Lord because he is great and he is powerful and he is holy and pure and righteous and just. He is all of those things. And we need to remember that. Proverbs is full of the statement that the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. We like to talk about how Jesus is our best friend or wear t-shirts. All I need is Jesus and coffee. (laughs) We have even seen some that say Jesus is my homeboy. But he is not. He is not. He is God Almighty. And we forget ourselves sometimes. We become far too familiar, too comfortable with our sin um, to realize that what we really need to be is face down in front of him. And we need to be like Isaiah standing before the throne. Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I will live among a people of unclean lips. We are all hopeless. And we don't like to talk about that very much. We talk about how God is loving, and God is kind, and he is merciful, and he is gracious, and he is all of those things. But none of that's worth anything if he's not also powerful and fear-inspiring. Because it's his power that protects us. It's his might that saves us. And it's those things that make him a safe place to land. He is almighty and he is powerful and we should fear him. We should stand in awe of that power and might. But we should also lift hands in gratitude that it's not directed at us. That his grace has saved us from it. And that's what Samuel says here. They recognize their sin and they are scared. And he says to them, verse 20, do not be afraid. God loves you so much. That's not what he says. Don't be afraid. Yes, you have sinned. But don't turn aside from following the Lord, but serve him. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God will uphold the glory of his own name. And he called Israel out to be his people. And so he would sustain them. He would give them grace, though they did not deserve it. Why? So that his name would be made great. So that he would be glorified. Yes, God does love us. And he does rescue us and redeem us because he loves us. But more than that, it is so that he might be glorified. He saves us so that we might bring glory to him. So that we can point to him and make much of his name. That's the purpose. For them, that was what Israel was supposed to do. And that's still our purpose today, is to make much of Jesus. The things that Samuel says to them here, I think are so good. Good reminders for everyone, not just them for, for them then, but for us now. 
He tells them in verse 21, Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. It's pointless. How many empty things do we get distracted by, right? Keep your eyes on the Lord. That's the way he closes. Verse 24, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away like the waters of this river, swept away, both you and your king. So the three directives that he closes with are fear the Lord, serve him, and remember. <laughs> Let your fear of God and your trust in him be bigger than anything else. Never stop serving him and bringing him glory. And you can see that Samuel still intends to do this because even though he's handing over his, you know, he's stepping down from the role of, as judge, he is still going to serve as an intercessor for Israel and as an instructor. That's what he tells them. Far be it from me that I should stop praying for you. Verse 23, of course I'm going to keep praying for you. Of course I am. That's my job. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. So Samuel is still going to be doing this work for the Lord, and he's called the people of God to keep serving him as well in their own way. Okay, he's not their judge anymore, but he's still their prophet and he's still their priest. And the last thing he tells them to do is to remember, remember, y'all, it's far too easy to forget. You can see it playing out in our culture that we are one generation away from the church disappearing in America. It does not take long. And so we have to be a people who are intentional about remembering. And I know I've talked about this in the weeks past, but y'all, it's important to, to make a list of the things that God has done for you. To know that God is good, not just in an abstract sense, but that he has been good to you. That he has worked great salvation in your life. To write it down, to repeat it to yourself to say it out loud in your home, to sing it in your car, to make it the anthem of your life, to say it over and over and over and over again so that when the hard times come, you don't forget that you know who you are, but more importantly, you know who God is and you know what he is able to do even when things seem impossible. If you make remembering your habit then it's harder to forget. And in the last chapter, chapter 13, we're going to see what the Lord requires of his people and what he requires is faithfulness. Okay? So Ammon has been dealt with. Israel has renewed her commitment to the Lord, and now it's going to be tested. The Philistines are back, and they mean business. Not only is their army 10 times the size of Saul's, and that's before Saul's army shrinks, by the way, um, but they've got sophisticated equipment that the Israelites don't have. They have chariots, they have swords, they have spears, and the Israelites have two spears or two swords. Maybe they have four weapons altogether, two swords, two spears. Either way, it doesn't compare to 300,000. It's basically nothing. So... They're described like they're the sand on the seashore, which I've never tried to count it, but I'm pretty sure you can't. They're terrifying, and they know it. 
So, chapter 13, verse 1. Saul was some age and had been reigning for some years. A little unsure about that, but that's okay. He chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. There's that place again. So Saul has called out all the people to gather because they've gone and irritated the Philistines. They've, like, poked the hornet's nest. And they're swarming. The Philistines are gathering. Saul sees them gathering. So he puts out the call for Israel to gather, to come together. So they go to Gilgal and they wait. Okay? Now you can't really blame them when they see all the Philistines coming for being scared, right? Because why? Verse 5, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore of multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash. That's just where Saul left from, by the way, to the east of beth When the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, they hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They ran. They were scared. And wouldn't you be? I mean, let's be honest. That would be terrifying for that many of an enemy army to come marching into your home. Because all I know about armies is what I've read in books and things like that. But, like, my impression is that when they are marching across land, they aren't exactly kind to those they meet. Homes are destroyed, farms decimated because they just take all the food. They can't think of the word again they take your animals for themselves oh you got a horse i'll take that thanks you know it's not good so everybody runs and hides they're they're leaving their things behind they're literally hiding in caves so you can't blame them for being scared it's not really fear that's a problem and i think that's important to note because you know we we will face scary things in life whether it's a disease or a situation or the unknown there, there are things to be afraid of in this life. There are, okay? But it's how we act when we, scare, when we are scared that makes a difference. What do you do when it seems like there is no hope? Where do you run? Who do you rely on? And how do you act when you're in panic mode? What do you do? You can tell a lot about someone by how they act when they're afraid. And we're about to find out exactly what kind of man Saul really is. So he's there. He's at Gilgal waiting for Samuel. That's what it tells us at the end of verse 7. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So he still has people with him, but they're scared. They're scared. And while he's there, he's getting antsy and fearful, right? Because the people are scared, and he's heard about it. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished, isn't that how it always goes? Behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. So Saul 
what's going on here? Because at, at first, it doesn't really seem like that big of a deal, right? He, to me, this is a guy who knows what needs to be done, and he is just trying to check off those boxes. Like, I need to do this before I go into battle, and I need to do this, and I need to do this, and I need to do this. He's huh? He's type A. That's that's right. He's got it written in his planner, and you did not show up when you said you were going to. But you said. That's right. So he's there. He's waiting. He's getting antsy. And he also, aside from being type A, Gina, seems like the kind of guy who likes action, right? Doesn't seem like waiting around would really be his cup of tea. Um, especially, Especially now that he has been confirmed as king, right? So he's already experienced this decisive victory. He's he's good. He's, you know, that's right. He liked getting things done. And what his eyes and probably all the scouts, anybody who wandered into Gilgal, told him was that he needed to get moving. So he did. He acts. Instead of waiting for Samuel, he gives the offering himself. And that's where the trouble really starts is when he acts instead of waiting. So let's see what happens. <clears throat> Samuel said, what have you done? What were you thinking? And Saul said, well, I mean, he's, he's got lots of reasons. And, and y'all, isn't that just the way of it? Can't you always come up with a good reason for why you did what you did, even though you knew you shouldn't do it? But, like, if you were going to do it, you were going to have a good reason for it. And so you were going to be able to justify whatever that bad thing was or that unwise thing. Like, you were going to have some good reasons for it, even if they didn't necessarily pan out or make much sense to anybody who was listening. You were going to have some reasons. And Saul's got some. What does he do? He's a blame shifter, right? Well, when I saw that the people were scattering, it's their fault they left from me, and that you didn't come, where have you been within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered, it's everybody else's fault. I said, I'm the only one who's where he's supposed to be doing what he's supposed to be doing, basically. Now the Philistines will come down against me here at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. Which, let's be clear, is offering the sacrifice the only way to seek the favor of the Lord? No. He could have, I don't know, prayed. And maybe if he had prayed, the Lord would have reassured him, given him peace of mind. (laughs) Or made Samuel just get on it, right? So, no, offering the sacrifice is not the only way. But Saul says, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I made myself do it. I didn't want to, but I mean, I had to. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. And here it is, the verse we all know. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. God, that's harsh. Like, real harsh. And it doesn't seem to, you know, the punishment doesn't really seem to fit the crime until you take a closer look at it. And I think it has a lot to do with their roles as prophet, priest, and king, right? Saul is Israel's king, but Samuel is her prophet. And sometimes priest, since, you know, there's not a high priest in Israel right now. Samuel fills that role occasionally. But as prophet, Samuel was charged with delivering the word of the Lord. Right? God talked to Samuel. Samuel talked to the people. Right? 
And that word was authoritative and binding. Now, if somebody today was like, I have the word of the Lord, listen to me. Don't listen. (laughs) Don't do it. But for Samuel, he was the Lord's mouthpiece. God chose to speak through Samuel. So by not waiting for Samuel, Saul was essentially saying that he didn't need to hear from the Lord before he acted. He didn't need any direction. He knew what needed to happen, and he was going to do it with or without God's approval. He was going to do it with y'all. He thinks he knows better than the prophet of the Lord. And I think I would have to agree with Samuel and say that's pretty foolish. Now, in the Bible, to call someone a fool is not just, that was stupid. A fool is one who does not walk in the ways of the Lord. They do not order their life according to God's standards. They do stupid things, yes, but it's more than... It's more than like intellectual um, fault and failing. It's moral failure as well. And so it is a harsh judgment with severe consequences. He was exactly the kind of king that the people of Israel thought they wanted, but he is not what they need. If he had followed the Lord, y'all, we are one chapter away from the warning that Samuel gave, right? The if-then statements, if you do this, then it'll be good. If you don't do this, it'll be really bad. Well, it's really bad for Samuel, for Saul. There are lots of things he could have done instead of um, usurping Samuel's role, but his actions show that it was more important for him to check off that box, to make sure that he did the right things, that he, you know, it's kind of like when earlier in 1 Samuel, the elders called in the ark. Like, I can't go into battle until I've done the ritual, so I'm going to do the ritual, and then I can go to battle, because that's what needs to be done. And it wasn't about seeking the Lord so much as making sure that that ritual has been accomplished, because God won't bless you unless you do this ritual, you know. He is no longer being driven by the Spirit, but by his fear. And it changes everything for him, because the moment he started letting his circumstances dictate his actions instead of the Lord dictating his actions is the moment that he became an unfit king for Israel. And so God says through Samuel that he has sought out a man after his own heart. What does that mean? Does it mean that David is without sin? Does it mean that he's just good and God loves him so much? Right. So the difference here. In the wording, it has to do with, like, when we think of heart, we think about emotions and, you know, the goodness of your heart and all that kinds of things. But for them, the heart was the seat of one's will. So when it talks about God choosing a man after his own heart, it is God choosing the king that he wants. It is, David is a man of God's own choosing. Saul was a man that the people wanted. But David is God's choice. He is the one who will step into Saul's role. And you know, it's not because he's perfect. He sins greatly. He messes up as well. But the difference is in how he responds to that conviction of sin. It's enormous. David is humble before the Lord. 
and Saul just bows up, right? You can see it in the way he defends himself and the way that he just keeps on trying to soldier through. Even after this moment, when he is told that the kingdom will not be his any longer, it's like he refuses to believe. I mean, like he will not let go. He can't admit or even see that anything he had done was wrong. And that's where the problem really is, is that he won't submit to the Lord's authority. He won't. So what happens? Samuel washes his hand of the situation and leaves. And that's bad, right? So Samuel's like, see ya. Peace out. Good luck with what you're doing. And if that didn't scare Saul, then nothing would. Because now Saul's not just grossly outnumbered. But without Samuel there, he doesn't have the word of the Lord to guide him, to help him, to direct him, to lead him into the battle. And that's never, ever a good place. To be without the word of the Lord is not a good place. Let's don't ever be without it. Um, That's a sad note. (laughs) Especially when you're about to go into battle. Like, don't do that. And so the way we end here, it's not good. Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. So we've shrunk. He had 3,000. Now he's got 600. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves sword or spears. So the Philistines had this special knowledge and they were not willing to share it. I mean, that's a good way to keep your enemies in check is to not let them have weapons so the israelites are stuck in the bronze age but the philistines having come from across the mediterranean sea had this more advanced knowledge that they brought with them and they're not sharing it but every one of the israelites went down to the philistines to sharpen his plowshare like they can't even sharpen their own farm implements on their own his mattock his axe or his sickle and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel they're completely dependent on their enemies for these things So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. And that's where it leads us, right? The odds are stacked against Israel. She doesn't have the numbers, for sure. And she doesn't have the weapons either. She's defenseless. She's being led by a man who doesn't have the word of the Lord. It doesn't look good for Israel. They look pretty hopeless. Things do. And we'll find out what happens next week. But I want to leave um, with this. What we do when it seems like there's no hope matters. How we respond to insurmountable odds says a lot about our hope or lack of it. You can try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can try to soldier through. Do it by your own will, your own strength of character, whatever. Or you can throw your hands up and go ahead and admit that you just can't. You can get to the end of yourself very quickly. And know that you can't do it, not on your own anyway. And it's when we arrive at the end of ourselves that God finally can make us strong. So things look bad for Israel. 
she's hopeless. <clears throat> but that's when God really shines, right? When you're at the end of your rope, you're truly desperate. That's when God comes through because his power is what made perfect in weakness. And just like Hannah said way back at the beginning of our study in 1 Samuel chapter 2, our God is one who looks out for the hopeless. And with him, those who are feeble bind on strength. So this week, let's find our strength in him. Because it's only in him that we'll find the strength that we need to stand.